Ko Kiora, Tenakoto, Tenakoto, Tenakoto Katoa. Hi, I'm Ben Dyson from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Uh, today we are sunny and fine in North Carolina in Greensboro, 82 degrees, and we have a lot of flowers out. It's a beautiful time of the year to be in Greensboro. Uh, and I'd like to welcome uh, Sue, Dr. Sue Sullivan from Ohio State University to our creative uh, pedagogy seminar. So Sue, what's the weather like in Columbus, Ohio? It's actually uh, sunny and warm in the 70s, low 70s, not a cloud in the sky. It's lovely after the storms rolled through at 2 a.m. last night. Excellent. Well, uh, look, we're uh, really fortunate to have you here today, uh, Dr. Sue Sullivan from Ohio State University. We're looking forward to uh, developing a better understanding and knowledge of uh, adventure-based learning, which you are an expert on. Uh, I like to say I've, I've met Sue and known Sue for a number of years now, and we're, we're, I've been fortunate that sometimes we're presented together in different groups on uh, adventure education or cooperative learning activities. And Sue wrote a chapter in our book on cooperative learning, Ash Casey's My Book, which was a great chapter on uh, group processing, which I recommend everybody read. Um, so uh, Sue, do you want to just start with a little intro to uh, adventure-based learning for us? Uh, and the students have read those papers, I think. Uh, did you see I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw the ones. The ones that you've already written. And so uh, we'll have, though, you know, they uh, have some knowledge and understanding of, uh, of ABL. Okay, so um, the way I'm going to do this, if this is okay with folks, just give you some historical context for how ABL has come about um, within the US, um, although its influence obviously heavily out of the UK, Australia, New Zealand. Um, uh, Sweden um, and other places but just just focusing in on the US at the minute so um, if we trace the origins of ABL way back uh, it began in the uh, camping movement um, in the late 1800s um, Recreational camping was seen as a way of at that time almost like moral education um, that then developed into through the scouting movement um, and in the early 1900s, 1910, 1912 um, for boys and girls, of course, boys came first. There's the uh, social critical person in me coming for out. Um, but then uh, overnight camping was actually incorporated into the school curriculum in the 20s and 30s um, as part of the school curriculum to educate students through the outdoors. Um, in the 50s and 60s is when we started to see the, the use of outdoor residential centers, um, so schools, and that continues today. For those of you that have taught in schools in the US, you know that you know, schools will send uh, seventh graders on a three-night three overnight trip to a residential center where they're gonna learn all these outdoor education and personal social skills. Um, so that was part of the school curriculum, started in the 50s and 60s, really. Um, Out of Bound USA came about in the early 60s to mid 60s, started to take a bit more of a hold in the US. And again, was used as part of the school curriculum. 
Um, if you know much about Outward Bound, early on it wasn't quite as developed in the way it is now, but now you, you can go out for anywhere from three weeks to three months to six months on an Outward Bound trip. Not really that viable necessarily um, in a school setting. So folks out of uh, Project Adventure um, in the 70s modified what was being done in Outward Bounds to try and get it to fit into schools. Um, and so the Project Adventure initially began in school physical education um, and then became more of a school-wide curriculum approach. And I'm sure you're all familiar with Ben's early work, looking at two schools um, in a large Midwestern city. <laughs> um, can't guess what that one might be. Um, where Project Adventure was used as a school-wide approach. Um, so from that, that it, all of those are still continuing in one form or another. Um, our work in, when I say our, I'm also talking about uh, Dr. Jim Ressler out of Northern Illinois University and Dr. Paul Sturr out of um, uh, California State University, San Marcos. Uh, they're my two collaborators in this. So our work in ABL kind of grew out of this. Um, we see it as a, a model that can be used in physical education, um, using the environment that you have in your physical education, uh, oh, sorry, within your school, the equipment you have in your PE closet, um, to work on the personal and social, as we call it, interpersonal and intrapersonal, uh, relationship skills with students. Um, I'm not going to get into definitions as you know, I'm sure you can read all of all of those. We don't need to get into that. Um, but the theoretical foundation for ABL as we currently use it is um, that within experiential education, uh, within experiential learning, I'm sure you've heard of David Kolb's experiential learning cycle. Um, we tend to align with Peter Jarvis a little bit more than, than Cole, although we have used Cole for our uh, debrief model. Um, and it also sits very nicely within constructivism. Um, so they're the three foundations for uh, what we do in adventure-based learning. Um, the way uh, it's been used both at Ohio State within our program and the work that we've done with pre-service teachers, um, with in-service teachers, and what, and I'll talk a little bit about where we're going with this um, in the future. But in our undergraduate program at Ohio State, it is one of the core content courses for our um, pre-service majors, also our coaching, sports coaching majors. Um, and the reason we do that is twofold, really, to help them develop their interpersonal and intrapersonal skills um, and also to learn how to create that student-centered emotionally safe environment in a physical education and or coaching setting so that they can work on the interpersonal and intrapersonal skills with their students um, so it's very it's taught very differently from our other content courses at ohio state um, because it, we also find it's a great way that they learn how to not only de debrief, but reflect and question students. Um, it, it really focuses in on their, their 
on their questioning or their uh, reflection skills. Um, so even though it may not be seen by all as a uh, content area in physical education, some of the byproducts that we get from that relative to our students being able, being comfortable to engage in a conversation or reflection with students that help them make meaning of what happened and how they can transfer that, we find that extremely useful. Um, our work at the minute, in fact, I'm just, <laughs> the three of us and one of my doc students are actually working on a, a book chapter for um, Paul Wright and Kevin Richards' book on social emotional learning in physical education. And we're looking at what's been done uh, through adventure-based learning to relate to the CASEL framework, in, which is what they're using is social, social and emotional learning. So we're looking at what's been done, um, how ABL, uh, the interplay between ABL and SEL, and then, you know, how you can do it in practice. So that's kind of uh, the background uh, in five minutes, seven minutes, um, short and sweet. Um, so I'm ha happy to answer any uh, questions or just have dialogue or if there's more that you want to know about it. Um, I didn't want to sit and just inundate you with a whole bunch of stuff. I find uh, having dialogue around things is, is uh, for me, a much easier way to understand what your understanding of it and also then to um, learn from you as much as hopefully you might learn something from me. Uh, Sue, that, that's a great approach. And in fact, we've had a number of sessions and where people have been less prescriptive and less asking questions about the papers the students have read. Uh, the dialogues really flowed and, and we've had some really good conversations and critiquing and also, you know, we've found it hard to stop. So, you know, um, we try to put a lid on it, you know, after about an hour and a half tops. But, you know, if the conversation... Uh, drifts a little bit, then we're, we're fine to even finish earlier than that. Uh, I'm not saying that's going to happen tonight, but uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's just good to know that uh, we respect your time. And if you've got, we know you've got things to do. I want to start with a question because I'm interested, particularly in, you said that you do use Kolb's uh, reflective cycle, but you also use Jarvis's work. Is that right? And could you just explain what the difference is uh, for everybody uh, so that that'll help them with their understanding. And then there yeah. might be other questions. Um, Jarvis um, critiqued, as many others have done, have critiqued Cole's four uh, stage cycle mm -hmm. um, for being too simplistic. Um, and if you look at um, how Cole came about here, it was actually quite a small... Um, a small uh, sample shall we say that you know he derived the cycle from so Jarvis takes it to look at there's there's nine different ways you can actually once you have an experience and it causes a disjuncture and disjuncture basically what the heck's going on this doesn't this doesn't um, align with anything that I know right now and so this disjuncture this experience is different and so Kolb would then say with your experience, oh, is that my, can you hear me? Just came up, my internet connection was down. Okay. Um, 
So Kolb, you would then have the experience and you reflect, you generalize um, and you transfer. Jarvis looks at it, there's nine different ways that we can go through this experiential learning. Um, there can be non-learning. I can come across an experience, it can cause disjuncture, and I just ignore it and I go on. Um, there's also, um, and uh, I'm making sure I understand uh, that I, I cover all of them, but the, the one we focus on is more the reflective learning. So that as I'm going, as I have this disjuncture, it causes me to think about what's happening and then to engage in a process where I'm reflecting on, I'm trying new things, I'm making sense of what happens and I come out of it changed in some way. Um, I can send you some, um, some information on Jarvis, Ben, I'll, I'll forward it to you um, that you can send out. Uh, we just found that as we were looking at working with our pre-service pre teachers, that Kolb was too simplistic as an overall framework. Kolb works perfectly for the work that we've done when we're looking at debriefing or reflecting on what's happening, but actually understanding um, the entirety of experiential learning, uh, we were finding holes in what Jarvis, uh, sorry, um, Kolb, um, and yet it is the most widely used um, experiential learning framework or cycle in adventure slash outdoor slash um, adventure-based learning. Mm -hmm. Does that answer? Yes, no, that's a great answer. And, uh, and if you could send me some stuff, that would be great. And I'll just share that with the students. Uh, yeah, and uh, it's just good to have that uh, level of understanding because, you know, if you just Google uh, reflective cycle, you're going to come up with Kolb and there'll be a hundred of them. And, you know, yeah. I think, uh, you know, Kolb came from Cornell and I think he was actually, if I'm not wrong, out of a school of business. He wasn't out of a school yeah. of education. Yeah, it was all so we had a slightly different groups. focus to you know, mm -hmm. more marketing oriented perhaps. And yes. so, so yeah. you can understand that, that it's for educators, we want to expand on it to, to suit yeah. our contexts. Yeah. 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 That's great. So, so uh, what do we get over to students for questions or uh, comments or we have issues, you know, we just, uh, whatever works. Um, who would like to start? Oh, okay. <laughs> okay <should be. laughs> Excellent. Good idea. Um, the, uh, one of the articles says adventure-based learning focuses on development of intra and interpersonal relationship. And um, experiential learning also emphasize knowledge is socially constructed. So I think there are some other, other pedagogical models which also focuses on social relationship or interaction and social skills. In my understanding, TPSR or cooperative learning or social mm -hmm. and emotional learning can be part of them. So what strengths do you think um, ABL have compared to other pedagogical models whose focus is also on developing positive relationship? That's a great question. Um, I think what adventure-based learning is, it's more of a, um, if you look at TPSR and you look at cooperative learning, you look at sport education, some would say that that focuses on some interpersonal or personal social, they typically use um, activities that you would see in physical education 
right, in, in what you would consider a typical physical education program. Adventure-based learning differs from that in that it is uh, you present the group with a series of activities, a sequence of activities where they, um, the teacher presents the activities, sets the boundaries, then takes a back seat. And what happens in the group then, the group solving these activities, as the group dynamics is, is where the learning occurs. It's not about solving the activity. The activity is just the vehicle to get them to interact and work on their interpersonal and intrapersonal skills. As a teacher, you then come back in after having observed what's going on and help them process what happened. So it could be a whole host of activities. They're not the important thing. So it's not as though I'm, we're learning to play volleyball and we're learning it through cooperative learning. We're using the activities in adventure-based learning to get the group, the class, the students, whoever you're working with, to actually learn about themselves and learning about working with others by engaging in these activities. The activities, there's thousands of them. The activities are not the important thing. The group dynamics that occur as they engage in these activities is the important thing in adventure-based learning. Um, I'm not saying the activities aren't important. The sequence of them and how you choose them and, and those kind of things are really important. But there's thousands of activities that you could choose to do and get the same, um, have the same uh, impact on your students in terms of developing their interpersonal and intrapersonal relationship skills. Does that Thank answer you. your question? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I have a question, uh, Dr. Uh, Sutherland. Uh, I, I just read the article, Learning to Teach article, and mm -hmm. just back to your point, the, the screens of activities is the most important aspect in adventure-based learning. And also in the article, uh, it said in practice, some pre-service teachers with high levels of pedagogy content knowledge, they adjust, they change the screens of activities based on their understanding uh, you know, of the functions uh, levels of their students' groups. So my question is, uh, you know, uh, most of the pre-service teachers, when they go to the schools, actually their pedagogical uh, content knowledge very, uh, uh, should be at the low, lower level. So what strategies uh, do you think can support the teachers uh, who are with lower level of PCK, uh, you know, to, uh, sorry, to, you know, to uh, understand their groups and to organize the screens of activities more appropriate uh, for their students, especially for those, yeah, with yeah, lower a, level. <laughs> that's a great question. Um, and I'm not saying this stuff comes easily. Um, to do ABL well, it takes time. It takes adjustment. You, you learn and reflect from what you're doing. So when we work with our undergraduate students, we're very deliberate and we have very intentional pedagogies that we use in teaching the adventure-based learning course to get them 
to they're all interested at first they're all worried about oh we solved that in five minutes did we beat the group last year they're all worried about solving the activities or completing the activities and it's a real shift for them and it usually takes about five or six weeks we have a 14 week semester for them to shift to understand through our constant reflection the intentional pedagogies we use the fact that we debrief every single class session both a lecture session and the activity session for them to understand the focus and what's going on and how they get to read the groups and i as i'm teaching this class and and actually um myself and and a couple of my doctoral students we typically will pause a number of times when we're teaching part before we hand it over to them and ask them to see if they can see what we're seeing, if that makes sense. So I will, if we're leading an activity and we're working on uh, something around communication and they've just, they've, they've gone through it, they've solved it and they think they're, you know, best thing since sliced bread. Then I will pause and reflect with them to, to pull out the important parts that as a facilitator, I look for to know they're ready to move on to cooperation. So if it's just one voice talking, for example, yeah, they might have sold the activity, but they're not working as a group. If it's um, some people have checked out or not really engaged, but again, they've, they've solved the activity, but I'm more interested in how the group is functioning. And so I deliberately use reflective strategies with them mm -hmm. to get them to try and see what I see or what we see in our facilitation and to constantly ask them, we point out the, the main parts in communication that we know are effective. And then can they see that in their groups? Can they give us examples of when that happened? And then the end part is trying to get them to understand if they were in my position teaching the class, would they move on to the next activities in the sequence that, that need higher level communication or more cooperative skills and so it's something it's as we're teaching it's the intentional pedagogies that we use throughout the 14 weeks to get them to understand what you know i've developed over God, more years than i can remember now um and so it it's about that it's cyclical and it's it's us helping them to reflect on what's actually happening. Not that, yeah, they solved all three activities in the class today. Woohoo! <laughs> but two people spoke and the rest just listened and did. So they're not ready to go on to cooperation because the group haven't learned really how to interact and how, how to work on uh, their communication, their active listening, their engagement skills. Does that... Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, so makes in the class, then when they get out into schools and do this, then we can work with them um, as to how this actually looks in practice with students in schools. So it's a lot of guiding initially, a lot of intentional questioning to try and build their toolkit and to help them realize that as we're teaching, you're not always going to be perfect and it's okay as long as you're reflecting back on okay i did this it didn't work with this group why and that the first question should not be it's the students 
the first question should always be, what did I do? What didn't I do to allow them to, to be successful? Was my sequence not right? Were my instructions or the boundaries I set? Did I not help to see what was happening in the class and step in before the whole thing blew up? Those kind of, of um, skills, facilitation skills, are, are, are the key as well. The sequence is important, but there's a lot more than the sequence in doing ABL. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Actually, can I just ask you, Sue, have you written something on these reflective strategies? Because, I mean, you're talking about them here. Uh, as you say, you've spent, you know, many, many years honing, developing these. They, they don't just, they, they just don't occur after reading a book or a paper. You, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, have you written about those reflective strategies? I mean, or can you just add to that a little bit? I know that's uh, difficult, but it, it's, uh, it's just something you probably do automatically. That's, you know. It is. Um we are actually incorporating it in the, the chapter that uh, okay. uh, Paul, Jim, Dehune and I are uh, writing for, for the book. But um, the strategies that we found, and remembering that three of us, well, I should say Paul and Jim were both doctoral students of mine, but they've gone on to do bigger and, and greater things. Dehune is, is currently a, a doctoral student of mine. So, they have been influenced somewhat with what I do, but they've also helped me to look at this through a different lens as they've gone on to uh, teach at their uh, different universities and do things in a slightly different way. So um, some of the strategies, and, and there will be more in the, in the chapter coming out, but some of the strategies, as I've said, getting students to see what we see. So stopping and getting them to reflect on what we're doing and why. So we call it, um, well, there's a couple. As we're going through our teaching, we intentionally question them if they can pick out the main parts from the reading and the model that we've talked about and see it in our practice and see what we're seeing. And if not, then it's a sign to us that, that we need to go back and and go over that material again, because if they're not seeing it or understanding it, I haven't done a good job in uh, helping them to understand the importance of it. So it's that constant reflection cycle, both in our classroom-based classes and in the gym. I'm talking at the minute in our undergraduate uh, ABL course. The other thing, I think the greatest skill in ABL is learning how to do a debrief or reflection section, session, group processing, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so we model that process. Um, by the time they come to teach, we've modeled it at least eight to ten times. And after every single one, we debrief the debrief. So we debrief what happened. And we take part, we use, obviously, our Sunday afternoon drive model as the main uh, debrief um, which is in the book chapter but I'll also send you another um, a short paper that I think really uh, kind of highlights that model a little better I'll send that to you Ben um, so we take those strategies and break them down and debrief what happened and if they can pick out those strategies in our debrief um, 
that's what we do every single time, both in the classroom and in the um, gym session. And then after the first six weeks, it turns over to, to the students and they teach each other. And after the debrief, I debrief the debrief with them. Um, so they're the two main skills. Now, Jim and Paul have some others that um, they've, they've used. But again, once we get this chapter in, uh, in you know, finished, <laughs> we'll have those a bit more. <laughs> so I think I can piggyback off of that just for a minute. Um, and so this is... Uh, I'm sure the podcast people are really tired of me saying um, every time I come to read something new and this was brand new for me. Um, I have this moment where I sort of sigh. I, I, I say to myself, Oh, I really thought that this was only something that was happening in, you know, core classes and mm -hmm. that you guys weren't experiencing this too. So I say that to go back to um, sort of Eddie's question earlier and talk about how when we do um, project-based learning or inquiry-based learning, right, mm -hmm. it's exactly the same thing where the kids are like, oh, Miss Lingle, five minutes, I'm done. And here's the answer. This is the answer you're looking for, right? And they miss um, all of the other pieces that were an important part of that process. Yes. So I guess... My question for you, and you may or may not be able to answer this, is where does – I'm very good at making connections between all of the things that we've learned so far in this course, which have been – a very PE focus and going, oh, but I can pull that and put that into this core classroom and it would work. So if we did that with adventure-based learning, what would I need to adapt in your, in your mind that to, to keep it true to ABL, right? But know that where there's this other content that's mm -hmm. happening. It's a great question. And actually, um, Part of uh, a few years ago, I was on a writing retreat with a colleague who teaches equity and diversity in, in our teaching and learning mm -hmm. um, course. And we were talking about her work. She's a, um, she uses art education. Her, her, um, yep. her work is around researching art education. And we were talking about ABL and, and the stuff she does. And she invited me in to do a session because the T&L folks teaching and learning folks didn't know what happened in the gym right. and they didn't think that equity and diversity was an issue in physical education, which it is, but it was just their frame of reference. Mm -hmm. um, but what I used there when I went in and taught that class was I used activities. It was a very experiential, uh, the, I've done it like four or five times now. It's a very experiential um, process and I take activities that you can do in the classroom um, that to get them to understand the process of adventure-based learning so I lead them through that and then we talk about the debrief but within that I intentionally and I do this when I teach my undergraduates my uh, PE and sport coaching folks I set them up and if they ever listen to this they're gonna just you know <laughs> I set them up for frustration more times than I 
than um, they intentionally think I'm doing <laughs> or that they realize because that's when the learning takes place. You're right. You can solve something in, in five minutes, two minutes, and I can be through. But there's the, they've solved the activity. Have they really learned how they contributed, how they helped someone else to understand what the activity was? So when I set them up, and I don't mean frustration mm -hmm. where the point that blood is drawn or bones are broken, but I do mean frustration where they get to the point where they do start to argue they do start to place blame. They, it can't possibly be me. It's got to be Ben that's doing this wrong. It's not me. I'm, I've got this. Um, because that sets up a situation where, which is much more, more powerful, and it's about how do we work in groups? What do I give and what do I need from this group? What can I give? What, can I, what do I need to allow this group that I'm working with currently in the gym or in a classroom to function in a way that we can learn from each other. And so setting them up where they can't do it quickly and that they do have to rely on others and they start to see the strengths of everyone in the group and what they can contribute. And your strengths are probably my weaknesses. So we, we work really well together and they start to get a greater appreciation of looking at things differently and relying on others and seeing what everyone brings to the table. And I think that is, it doesn't matter what the activities we're doing, whether we're doing it in science, whether we're doing it in math, whether we're doing it in physical education, it's the process that is the important part. It's the learning about myself and learning about others is the key. And so the activities that you can do, you can take into your classroom, can set that up. And then it's debriefing about that. And then you can bring in the content, the, you know, the project-based learning or the inquiry-based learning. Um, but it's always cycling back, I think, to having a greater understanding of my role in the group and how I can improve and how I can learn about others to really help the group to understand and to really move through whatever the content is. Did that answer? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it did. I, I think that's also been um, one of the great things that I've been able to take away is that this, um, there's a lot about debriefing across contents. And, mm -hmm. and so for me, it's been great because, you know, Ben's talked about it in cooperative learning and we've talked about it in sport ed and we've talked about it in other places. And, um, we talk about it in math all the time, right? It's right. that after the fact, explain your process or in science, like, but really what's happened. So I think, um, Yes, all that you have said makes sense because we also tell um, pre-service teachers in, especially in middle grades who believe in middle school philosophy, like I do, that it's not always about the content. So to bring ABL in at the beginning of the year and be able to talk about um, these pieces of who we are and how we operate together and how we work as a team because we use the team concept 
we try mm -hmm. in middle school, that this is a great place for that P, for the PE teacher to now have some serious cultural capital inside the space and be like, but I can help you walk through all of these pieces. And we build that more um, cohesive um, learning community that Judy and I talk about a lot um, that doesn't privilege math or language arts above art or PE. And so that I think right. ABL sets itself up really nicely to be that one of those moments where the playing field gets leveled, all of our strengths come together and we can figure out how to incorporate these things. So. Yeah. And the other th great thing about, um, j just what you said uh, made me think about something here that the other great thing about ABL in a physical education environment is it does exactly that. It levels the playing field. doesn't matter if I'm, you know, the greatest athlete, I can, I can fail as much as anyone else at these tasks, or I can learn as much as anyone else at these tasks. It's not about my athletic ability because solving the activities that we do is more than being athletic. It's thinking outside the box. It's being able to take someone's idea and build on it and now incorporate others within that. It's about being a leader, not a leader in that I'm the person with the loudest voice and everyone usually follows me, not that kind of leader, but a leader that can bring people together and can start to get them to see how important are the, the strengths that everyone brings to the table. And so it, that's uh, it just what you were saying made me think about when we use ABL it is to level that playing field. It's not about physical ability. Uh, thanks, Sue. I, I just uh, wanted to bring up that we talked about earlier in our pedagogy class, this notion of uncertainty. We had uh, Klaus Kreider over here from Hamburg University, and he just mentioned it a little bit. But essentially, uh, their term of uncertainty is creating an environment or, similar to what you were just talking about, where the, there is major problem solving, but it's with something that's a very much a novel task. Mm -hmm. really turning something on its head. So it's very uh, unusual for the student to be able to, to have seen this before. And so I think uh, it's, you know, there, I just try to make a connection for the students with that. Um, and how there's so much of the adventure-based learning is tied up in that notion of problem solving and working together to solve the task. In cooperative learning, we use a term called positive interdependence which I would argue, you know, could be used if you choose an ABL, but to get good positive independence where people do actually work together and not just Sue and Ben, but Sue, Ben mm -hmm. and everyone else in the group that's in the group, you know, no matter how many people are in the group is very difficult at times. So actually the content may not matter, I think, but you know, for people who don't really understand the, the, intricacies of this could you just talk about more about the task creating a task that helps because just any task doesn't work you know right. having a task that enables students to be pushed sort of out of their comfort zone but not too fast so it's stressful but also uh, it is uh, people have to work together in order to uh, be successful and that everybody needs to contribute somehow can you just talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that's sort of like a nuanced piece of this. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that hits on what Eddie was talking about earlier in terms of the sequence. Um, there's a sequence and flow in adventure-based learning um, that is really important to for the facilitator to understand um, what that sequence and flow is or what the sequence is and then the flow is related to the particular group that you're working with. So the sequence that we use is uh, the getting to know you or de-inhibitizers, icebreakers some may call it. Uh, we then move on to activities that work on cooperation, oh, sorry, communication, cooperation, trust, both emotional and physical trust, not just physical trust. We don't just go and do the trust fall or the, you know, climb over a 12 foot wall. Um, it's more to me before I'm emotional trust is more important than physical trust. I've got to trust that if I put myself out there and make a mistake, people aren't going to make fun of me because there's nothing worse than killing group dynamics or someone's, uh, someone's belief in their self than putting themselves out there and, and being ridiculed. So emotional and physical trust, then problem solving, and then higher level challenges. So that, that's our sequence that we, we use. Within that, we merge that then with Tuckman's um, uh, stages of uh, group small group development, where you've got the forming, the storming, the norming, performing, and trans transforming <laughs> comes at the end. Um, but Tuckman has found in his work with small groups, and this was back in the 60s, so realize that this was 60s, 70s, so it's a while ago. Um, but some of the work that's been done over the years has shown that this actually is a way that we can work uh, within the outdoors or uh, outdoor and adventure or ABL with, with, uh, with students or different populations. But so the forming is coming together, getting to know people if we look at Tuckman. Okay, so that would be the uh, icebreakers, the inhibitizers, the communication. Okay, once we move to activities that require greater levels of communication, then we start to see the group shift into the storming stage. And the storming is all about hierarchy. You know, I want to be the top. So I'm just going to make sure that I put everyone down. It's only my idea. I'm going to belittle everyone else's idea because I want to be the leader of this group, for example. So that would be the storming. And that comes out when a group is having to work together more, when they're having to rely on others, when they're having to um, really give and take, take someone's idea, be willing to listen, take a back seat, do what's best for the group. And that happens when we get to the activities that require more communication and lower level cooperation. So we start to see the storming. The norming phase is when, as a group, we've come together and we figured each other out and we figured out what's acceptable and unacceptable, how we can work together. Um, and that comes once we move into activities that take more cooperation and starting to get into trust and then the performing is when we move into trust higher level trust into problem solving now the important thing with tuckman is it's not just linear <laughs> you cycle back okay so a group can go all the way to performing and come back to storming so it is cyclical 
but it aligns nicely with the sequence. As we think about how group develops, it works with the sequence. So the sequence of activities are the ones I said. The flow is how we match that sequence to the group that we're working with. So for example, in physical education or in math, I could have sixth grade, okay? Is sixth grade middle school in North Carolina? Okay, is in Ohio too. So I can do sixth grade um, content. I can have two sixth grade groups, right? And they're all perfectly the same. They'll just move through every content at the same pace, right? Yeah, no. So that's where the flow comes in. I can think, okay, for my, I'm taking physical education, excuse me, cause just because that's what I'm more familiar with. Um, I've planned out this, I'm going to do a 10 day unit on adventure-based learning at the beginning of the year. Here's what I plan to do with sixth grade. Guess what? After day one, what's going to happen? Or after day two, what's going to happen? I'm not moving through that at the same pace because Mr. Smith's class have got it together. They're, they communicate well. So they might spend less time on communication and I can get to the cooperation, the trust, the problem solving much more quickly. But Mr. Dyson's class, <laughs> they don't talk well, they don't listen well. So guess what? We spend more time on activities where communication is the focus, not the only focus, but the main focus. And once they start to communicate better, then we can move them along. So that's where the flow comes in. So there's a sequence, but the flow is based on each class that you're teaching. And that's where we find our students, our pre-service teachers have difficulty because they're used to saying, okay, I've got 10 days to teach a soccer unit. Boom, 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 boom. I'm using sport ed and here's what I'm gonna do. In adventure-based learning, they could have this theoretical unit and it can blow up on day two or day three or day four. And so realizing that a group is using put down still. One person is talking the entire time. If someone else's idea is put forward, it's not taken on board. Being able to realize that shows that the group is not ready to move on. Those things need to be worked out. And so other activities that can bring those out more and then the debrief is important. Does that, does that get Thanks, what we're getting great. at? Yeah, and you know, obviously uh, we all need to read more about it and, uh, uh, and we'll look forward to your chapter coming up. Uh, folks, other questions? I've got a couple. You know me, Ben. <laughs> uh, first of all, see, thank you for giving us more to read. I know Jennifer and I are writing down, oh, we've got to read this, we have to read this, we have to read this. So thank you for putting more reading on our plate. <laughs> no worries, Judy. That's where it should be. I just what you need in your fourth year, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. More to read, something else to say. Oh, am I really thinking the right way for a dissertation topic? And, you know, what curveball? can we throw in at the end? So I do have a couple of questions. I'll start with a, a basic one, just because I'm intrigued. Um, so with your background in ABL, and then of course, I'm going to connect to the occupational socialization theory. What experiences did you have growing up uh, that really got you to buy into ABL to a point where obviously you've advocated that for 
uh, it to be a core content piece at the Ohio State University. I should say the Ohio State University. No, I don't say the. <laughs> <laughs> I don't trademark the. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I was, um, although my son would greatly argue with me, he thinks I have no athletic ability, but growing up, um, I was, you know, I played sports to a very high level um, all through high school and college. But that, so that part of me is why initially I kind of went to physical education. But the part of me growing up in my family, we camped, we sailed. We would sit, we would go, like our family holidays, the five of us and the dog <laughs> would pack up, put the tent in the roof rack, trail the sailboat behind, and we'd be off going to the Highlands in Scotland, or we'd be going to Wales, or we'd be going wherever we'd be going. Um, and that was our vacation. And so we would be sitting around, my dad taught us all to whittle, I don't know if you know that, you know, like carve, carve around yeah. the campfire. Yeah. Um, you know, we would cook around the campfire until my mom got to the point where she's like, no, I need something different. But so that's what we did. We were in the outdoors. Now, my parents, were not athletic at all just not my dad he was a say he sailed i mean they would sail across to france they had a, a they, by the time we all left school they bought themselves a, a bigger sailboat would sail to front couldn't swim a lick tried to teach him to swim couldn't swim a lick my mom oh, wow. would have my grandma write her excuse notes to get out of physical education <laughs> she hated it in school <laughs> But they both had a love of the outdoors. And so growing up, that's what we did. That's, we, you know, we probably have been to, well, I know, just about every county in England and have camped or have sailed or have hiked or have done something there. Um, when I was in school, in high school, the equivalent of high school, we went to one of the residential centers, you know, that I talked about some of the history. And so, that was where I learned to cave and abseil and rock climb and just, you know, my parents weren't doing that, but I loved it. When I was, I was fortunate enough to go to a physical education college, Bedford Physical Ed uh, College of Physical Education. Um, and part of our undergraduate degree was a course in outdoor and adventure education. And I just absolutely loved it. And from that point, found a way i was fortunate enough in my teaching practice um to be able to teach some of that in schools um, and volunteer for schools that took their students to these outdoor centers um, so that my first teaching job that's exactly what i did i you know i i tried to bring in as much as i possibly could in teaching in the outdoors. At that point, I didn't call it adventure education. I wanted to get kids out who didn't have a chance to ever go sailing, to ever go hiking, to ever do any of that. Um, and that was my passion. Um, at the same time, I was playing sports to a high level, but I didn't see that physical education was where I needed to work with those students. I wanted to work with the students who hated sports but wanted to learn to sail or hated sports and wanted to learn to rollerblade or, or something different. Um, when I came to the US, I, uh, I did my master's at 
Ohio University. I came to coach field hockey, then I was going to Australia and New Zealand before I went back to the UK. That never happened. I stayed in the US. Um, but out, coming out of my master's program, um, I started working for an organization called Recreation Unlimited, uh, which is a uh, private nonprofit that works with people with disabilities and uses the outdoors and or adventure activities to work on their interpersonal, intrapersonal skills, as well as, um, you know, their, their um, self-esteem, their self-concept, all of those things. Uh, so I worked there for a while, went and did my PhD at OSU, uh, and was fortunate enough to have an advisor at that time, I had co-advisors, who knew nothing about adventure education, <laughs> knew about teaching and working with people with disabilities, but because I was so passionate about it, we're like, okay, well, you can do your dissertation, go this way. Um, so I've had a lot of support along the way that has helped me to develop this passion that I had or this, these experiences I had when I was younger that I saw value in. And every time I've used them with different populations from kindergartners through to corporate groups, there's something to offer and there's something that they buy in and there's, there's um, something that they learn in those experiences. So that's kind of a long-winded answer to how I got to, <laughs> to where I am. And then actually, thankfully, when I, when I was a visiting assistant professor at Ohio State, um, I believe it was Mary O'Sullivan, Dr. Mary O'Sullivan said, um, they were looking for new courses. And I'm like, well, hey, how about this adventure ed and and she'd known Ben and you know that they, they bought into it and then developed that course back in um, I think it was around 2001 um, and that's morphed very much in the last 20 years uh, but that's I was fortunate enough to give be given that opportunity develop the course and then when I came I took the position in the tenure track obviously that became my course and so that you know, that's been my baby ever since. And then Paul and Jim was fortunate enough to have doctoral students who were interested in this area because I'm a strong believer that they shouldn't just do what I do. It needs to be their interest. Um, and it just so happened it was. Uh, and so, you know, I've, I've had that and got a great group of colleagues. Ben was wonderful early on, took me under his wing when he knew I was interested in uh, the outdoors and adventure. And then I've had other colleagues uh, you know, help want to collaborate and push my thinking. So long-winded answer. <laughs> but, no, that, that's, that's great. Um, and, that's... and I was going to, sorry, Ben, didn't mean to cut you off. I, I've got a couple of different things. So the first thing, I'm, you know, I'm from the central Ohio area, so I'm familiar with the uh -huh. there. So um, one of the pieces, and I believe it was the learning to teach piece, you, you bring up a couple of different things. First, and I'm saying I'm kind of switching the conversation from, um, you know, I, I want to know what your background is because, you know, you, for me, I feel like uh, now here it is, it's kind of cool because lately in your presentations, I feel like there's a, a much needed sociocritical lens that you're, you're at tagging on. So it's really nice to hear that you said it, the course is morphed. And I think that's the beauty of pedagogy. We, we do have that ability to make it make sense for our students during the times which are necessary. Right. Uh, so I think that's kind of neat. The, the, the thing about the learn to teach piece, I've, I went into what I'm currently doing with teacher preparation 
and thinking about, you know, teaching a methods class and, and you know, allowing them, and I, and I could totally identify in class, got it, they're solid, we can, you know, discuss and, you know, like the idea that you're saying to be able to debrief the debrief, and, but yeah. then you throw them out to, the, to real students, and then you can see where, you know, the change, and it's one thing when I am the student, but then now when I have to lead it and put myself, yes. uh, you know, on the other side of the fence, so to speak, I was really curious, and of course, again, with my background being from the Central Ohio area, do you have schools where you can send, you know, uh, students to really see ABL in action? Because part of this article, you made the point of, they may be familiar because of your class, but they may not have experienced it as a student when they were in school, and that was, that's why I asked the first question. And I know being, and of course, I'm, I'm much older uh, than many of my colleagues in, in this wonderful chat, but um, I definitely didn't have this in Central Ohio, so I, I was real curious. Are you purposely sending your students to student teach with with folks that do have a strong background, probably your grads, uh, in your in your area? Um, yeah, we're fortunate in in uh, Columbus. As I said, Ben did his early work with two project adventure schools, and even though the original PE teachers, one of whom is now the principal at one of the schools, um, but that philosophy has continued. So um, we do collaborate with one of the schools that Ben used that's still a project adventure school. Um, and so we have used those in elementary methods. We have some uh, great teachers in and around Central Ohio that might not do ABL the way that we do it but do it in a way that they are willing to, they believe in it and are willing to have students come in and try um, things. These, uh, both at the elementary, and we're starting to get more into the secondary um, schools, primarily middle school at the minute. Um, we're still looking for people. Uh, we, we typically, work with the same teachers for uh, student teaching and we have our set that we work with for elementary and secondary methods so in elementary which is where one of the courses that i teach elementary methods um i'll i'll approach teachers our students get to choose to teach um you know they get to choose the unit that they're going to teach while they're there and so if students want to continue to develop their understanding of abl and some do some don't some take the class, studentship, got a good grade. No, I'm never going to do that again in my life, uh, whereas others do. And so if I have those that really buy into it and want to develop more, then, yeah, they go out to particular teachers that I know will help foster that. Um, we're still looking at the secondary level. Middle school seems to be where we've got some of our recent grads um, who are willing to do it. Um, secondary PE in Ohio uh, at the high school level, you know, they only have to take half a credit, half a Carnegie credit. They can do it in summer, in three weeks. Um, so what's, you know, it's, it's not great. Um, and so we're, we're struggling to find high schools that will have students, uh, student teachers that they will say, okay, you can go do this. Um, ABL unit because they've got so much other stuff that they've got to cover and it when they only have students you know for 18 weeks and that's all they see them in high school 
Um, and they've got, in Ohio, we have um, assessments they have to do for physical education. And although ABL will cover two of them, there's other things that it doesn't cover. And so if they're focused on trying to get students through these assessments, so we've got some challenges at the, the high school level, but elementary and middle, we've been fortunate enough to, I know if, if someone wants to do it, I'm, I know the five schools I can send them to. So. Thank you. You're welcome. And just to say that the course since, since the uh, learning to teach article, uh, I believe that one was, 2014 yeah um that our course has morphed a, a lot in terms of how my pedagogy has changed a lot based on what we're learning when our grads go out in schools and when they come back and they you know they, they get this shock of yeah we loved it best thing and suddenly these middle school kids just ate us alive well yeah and so you know pedagogy my pedagogy through that course has shifted to help students negotiate what they're going to get out in schools as well. The other work to read, if you haven't read it, and I know, um, Donald, you may, is uh, Michelle Dillon's work out of University of Limerick. Um, she's done some great work around this and had similar findings in terms of what students, uh, pre-service teachers held on to coming out of their program and what they actually took and delivered in schools. Um, she's done some great work and, and is continuing to do that. So I would highly recommend uh, Michelle's work for you as well. Yeah, we had, uh, I had Michelle for a semester, my first semester of, as an undergraduate for adventure education. They yeah. just um, published the handbook of ideas mm -hmm. for self and Deborah, which is a really useful resource that I think can be got online for anybody who's interested in just trying out those activities at uh, in, in their classrooms or in, with their with their students and stuff yeah uh, I can send what I love about that stuff Donald was they also pulled in which we don't do in ours is uh, camp crafts and orienteering I believe too right correct yeah yeah um, I remember being a budding undergraduate going around <laughs> the river Shannon in the University of Limerick trying to pick up pieces of timber to <laughs> prepare for a on a wet wet on a wet Monday morning uh, picking up pieces of wet timber to, for a camp craft uh, lesson we had going on. But yeah, uh, yeah no, uh, there, uh, Michelle would have done some work on that and that handbook that they published in September was particularly valuable as well too. Yeah, and also uh, Michelle's work, I think, oh, don't cite me on the year, um, but her work from her dissertation, Living the Curriculum, that's, be, that's been published in JTPE, I think it's either 2017, 2018, um, was really a great piece as well. Um, in terms of learning to teach. They didn't call it adventure-based learning, but Michelle and I have had many conversations. And so the same philosophical underpinnings are there from the adventure education, adventure-based learning. And so um, it was really a well-written piece. Um, and that's in JTPE. I would highly recommend reading that as well. Um, yeah, and it's good that you mentioned uh I know you mentioned equity there earlier as well too, and and just in the kind of theme of, on the Irish theme or Irish scholars. I know you would have uh, had a look at Jack Nealon's work, mm -hmm. see there very recently as well too. Uh, and just for anyone that doesn't know, Jack Nealon's a teacher in uh, Ireland who uh, implemented ABL uh, with a group of students uh, with a special uh, or moderate general learning disabilities in a summer 
camp outside the school. They were still part of the school. They were still um, with the school, but it was done in, uh, during the summer. Uh, and they had a lot of success as well with that. And just on that, I'm wondering, is there work? Because I know you mentioned we had like ABL in the classroom, ABL in physical education. Uh, we also have, you've done work. And as I said, there's that example that you've looked at recently with Jack and Missy, they've done work on students with moderate general learning disabilities. Uh, have we looked at work in terms of, say, equity within ABL in, in a, you know, a homogenous classroom where there would be students with mixed uh, physical and uh, physical and learning disabilities? Um, we haven't done any research in that area, but um, certainly in our practice, yes, because uh, inclusion, um, you know, in Ohio, uh, teaching physical education and where Paul's teaching and Jim's teaching, then students with IEPs or 504 plans will be included in those classes. Um, it's not an area that we've actually uh, particularly researched at the minute. Um, so I think, I really think Jack, Jack's work is at the forefront of that. Um, in turn, now he worked with just students with um, disabilities, not in a inclusive mm -hmm. setting, but um, his work uh, has kind of taken some of the work that was done you know, in the 2000s, early 2000s, to take that on board. Now, there is a doc student um, that worked with Dave Peretta who, who used ABL in schools um, and had students with, with and without disabilities. It was an inclusive class. Uh, and she, she got some really good findings. Unfortunately, she hasn't published yet, and I keep trying to get her to to get that out um, because she's she's done some good work in that area as well. Yeah, because I'm not I like I'm not trying to eat an empirical stick here, but you know if you're working in physical education classrooms with kids, you are going to be working on these. Absolutely. So the data mightn't show it, but it's just yeah. important because I know we've had some other scholars on here as well that have talked about it. I know Peter Hasty and Tristan Wallet talking about equity in sport ed and. You know, I would think myself that maybe ABL would have a would have a much more inclusive. Um, uh, embodiment, uh, I suppose, embodied through its practice than maybe some other models that we look at and stuff. And that's not to be sport ed with a stick either. But, you know, it's important that, uh, it's important, I suppose, that this stuff is kind of you know, acknowledged as well too. And I think it's just, it's an area that I think ABL needs to maybe just make, because I imagine anyone that's implementing ABL practices in physical education settings is doing this with these type of kids and doing it with a lot of success in comparison yeah. to a lot of other pedagogical approaches and it's yeah. just something that needs to be recognized and as i mentioned to jack or and missy before as well was that when i when i saw the work first i was kind of you know is, is this not obvious you know what i mean is, is, yeah. would, is this not a great approach to use with right. them you know um the other thing i wanted to ask you about sue as well was i know that did you have graduate students looking at professional development in ohio yes uh, and I was just wondering if you could tell me kind of the type of professional development they've been involved with observing, I suppose, or teachers have been involved in Ohio now that um, I know from your workshop that Eddie and I attended last year, we were talking about is it, so these standards are now baselines for social emotional learning and effective outcomes, I suppose, in Ohio State. And could you just maybe tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing with professional development? Well, actually, uh, one of my uh, Doc soon, she will be defending here shortly. Um, Kelsey Higginson has looked at, um, worked with three teachers out of one of the school districts around central Ohio, um, 
using both participatory action research and uh, learning communities, community of practice um, in their understanding of the new standards, just to let those know that um, starting in August, uh, Ohio now has P12 social emotional learning standards uh, that are subject free. So everyone in school has to address these in some way or the other. Um, obviously, physical education, we feel, um, is a natural place to be able to do this because they occur naturally in every in physical education classes. Um, and so Kelsey has been working with three teachers um, through an ongoing professional development uh, community practice, kind of modeling some of the work that Missy did um, and Kevin Patton have done uh, working with teachers. Um, and so she spent from August through to end of January uh, and is just finishing up, writing up on that in terms of working with teachers. Uh, my uh, Another doc student I have, Daekyun, is about to uh, propose and is going to be doing a very similar thing, but not on SEL. Uh, Kelsey was looking at SEL, not at ABL. So it wasn't a content, it was understanding SEL, incorporating that into their teaching. Daekyun is going to look at uh, using adventure-based learning to, um, and is using a, a professional develop, ongoing professional development approach similar. Uh, he's not doing partic participatory action research, but he is using learning communities uh, to focus on positive youth development um, through ABL. Um, so that's kind of where we are, uh, the work that um, my students and I are doing around professional development, um, just to understand what's, what's coming down the road for these teachers. Uh, you know, especially now, you know, since March, they haven't been able to be in schools. We, we're one of the states that closed pretty early on um, our schools. And so even though we don't know, we're not going back, you know, this school year as everyone who has a child in school or is teacher in school knows. Um, so it's it's been a transition for teachers and the demand was there um, and so it was part of Kelsey's idea to work with a small group of teachers to help them to understand and through obviously through community of practice so that they can help each other to understand how to negotiate um, these new standards that are coming through. Because they, they literally, I was, on, I was part of the um, writing team and the advisory committee. I don't know how I got on both um, for these standards. And then, you know, as anything, when you're working with a, um, a state and it's a statewide thing, it's got to go through the Department of Ed and, you know, the board and everything. It took, a, it took longer to get them out. So they literally hit right as the school year was starting. So the, the PD days at the beginning of the school year um, was literally a quick hit on here are the new standards, here's what they are, and off you go, rest of the school year. Um, and so there's still a lot of work that needs to be done there. Um, and I'm part of our uh, Ohio Association of Health, Physical Education, Recreation, Dance, uh, past president um, of that. And, and we've noticed that there's a demand from teachers. There's a need from teachers. These standards have suddenly hit and they're content free, 
but they need to be addressed um, some way, somehow, in physical education as well as every other subject. And so at the state level, we're trying to, in our uh, workshops and our conference, trying to provide some, you know, it's a quick hit professional development, but at least it's something to help teachers understand ways that they can do this. Did that, that was kind of in a roundabout way, Donal. Yeah, no, that was not, again, just, I know you, we, you would have touched on that last year or in Tampa. Yeah. Um, so it's just good to hear it because I think you're actually, um, I think you're ahead of the curve maybe in a lot of what you're trying to do with professional development and trying to, trying to hit these um, standards. And I don't, you know, I just think it's interesting from people maybe from other states or even other countries to hear about the work you're doing up there. Thank you. But it's not an easy process by any means. No, no, no. <laughs> no. It's muddy, very muddy, but that's, that's part of the joy of it as well. Yeah, it's very messy. Uh, and uh, in 2007, New Zealand brought in content-free, what they call key competencies. And there were things like relating to others, mm -hmm. uh, managing self, uh, thinking, uh, and uh, contributing and participating. So they're across the curriculum and it took, you know, it's still, they're still working on them now. That's 10, over 10 years later. So that's probably the, the cycle that you're in for that. Um, yeah. yeah. And it, it's very complicated, but connected to that, I had a question, Sue, that I've been um, wanting to ask. I think it's connected to a number of questions that we've had. So when we're starting to implement ABL in schools, so, you know, maybe it's part of the professional development, like your new, uh, your doctoral student that's just done maybe with SEL or the new one that's going to be doing on ABL, you know, uh, for an innovative pedagogy, it seems like it requires a conceptual shift. It's mm. sort of, uh, or a philosophical shift, or uh, maybe, you know, it's just not business as usual. Um, and you mentioned that earlier on, you know, with the undergrads. So yeah. when we're working with teachers in schools, uh, particularly, how do you, how would you suggest we try to help them, you know, work through that? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? It's, yeah. yeah. And uh, many pe all the people here, all the, all the, uh, all of our grad students will understand this as well. Yeah. So could you just talk a little bit about that and anybody feel like they could chip in, but I think it's just not business as usual. It's sort of like, you know, Ash has talked about it with uh, cooperative learning. Uh, and I have, uh, Hasty has talked about it with sport ed, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Stephen Harvey talked about it with games. Um, you know, Dylan Lanny talked about it with LGBG plus queer, you know, like, you know, or Pringle, Richard Pringle talked about it with, you know, trying to get uh, people to see the power that exists within sport, you know, so. And you're right, it is, it's, it is a cultural shift. Um, what, what I found in, well, we found, Paul, Jim and I, um, in our work um, and the work that Doc, my Doc students have, have taken on and, and run with and the work that we're doing at the state level is to find teachers who um, physical education is the vehicle to teach the whole child. If we can find those teachers, then that cultural shift is not so great. If they have, if they're already um, believing that 
the whole child is important and that physical education can be a very socially unjust environment, um, then it's starting to look at, or we're starting to get to the teachers that realize there's more to it than just teaching flag football or just teaching volleyball or just teaching, you know, whatever sports. Um, we've also found that, well, I can't say this. I was going to say that um, one of our, the recent folks that we're working with that hopefully Dekun will be able to do his um, dissertation is it's finding principals who also value the whole child and that teaching or using content to work on personal, social, intra, inter, interpersonal, social, emotional is more valuable than just teaching physical education. Um, and so when we find those teachers that buy into that, then it's, it's not such a huge cultural shift. Um, and they will actually buy into wanting to learn about ABL and how to do it rather than some of the, the articles you read on the um, learning to teach, they enjoyed ABL. They had fun in the class, but when it came to work up against students who this wasn't their values, it was against the values that they'd been taught in physical or how physical education had been taught that resistance just created such a barrier that they gave up on, on, you know, some of the most fundamental parts of what makes ABL, ABL. So if we can get teachers who buy into, yes, this might be tough, but we're working on helping develop our students, the whole student in ways that's going to help them uh, negotiate their lives beyond school, then they're the ones that, it's easier to do this work with. I'm not saying we can't do it with others, but it's, it's by getting them to buy into, this is more than just teaching physical education. They're, they're the teachers we've had success with. Yeah. That may be your link to, to the middle school people because, yeah. right, because this we believe, which is the middle school associations, um, little monolith right does nothing but preach about teaching to the whole child and right. that so it and judy is it ohio or illinois i swear it's ohio um amle is based out so the association of columbus yeah the association yeah. of middle level edu educators yeah. is based out of columbus which is a movement in the middle school um world that started in the 80s so I find that fascinating because I think you'll be, I'm, seriously, you want to read the monolith. Um, I was actually brought up here in North Carolina for my education at UNCG. And we, we read that thing over and over and over and over again um, for my initial licensure. And so I, I would hope that in Columbus, you would actually have a whole host of people who mm -hmm. believe that um, and believe in educating the whole child, not just in physical education, um, but across the board, uh, just simply by demographics of where that movement 
really came from. And that's a great point. Thank you, Jennifer. I wrote that down. Um, I will certainly look into that. And, and, and with that, um, we found working with elementary teachers, you know, they're willing to, they see their kids more, so they're willing to try things. Um, but we found that the need at the middle school level and at those, those not necessarily, or in schools where there is a need beyond um, the content, if this makes sense. So one of the schools that uh, we're going to be working with in the fall is a Title I school, um, really high transient rate, low socioeconomic, a lot of gang problems in the school, but the teachers buy into it and the principal buys into this. It's more than content. Um, and so, and we found that in other pockets of Ohio, that's not necessarily Title I schools, but something's happened in the school or there's a need in the school, whether it be gun violence, whether it be school shootings, whether, it, you know, trauma, and whatever's happening, then when we find those teachers, they buy into these innovative approaches because it's using, it's using another content area to be able to teach the whole child or to focus on what these students need to be successful, not just in school, but in life and to how they can navigate their current situation and the skills that they need. So that's a great, I'm going to, I've written that down. I'm definitely going to look into that. Thank you. Oh, it's not a big book, so it's easy to read. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Yeah. I don't need extra reading. Probably. No, no, no. <laughs> and if you can get a hold of the earlier copies, they're even smaller. Okay. Uh, so there I'll you go. <laughs> I have one more um, dying question oh. I have to ask. And then uh, I don't mind how long we go after that. If you don't mind, Sue. Could you talk more about facilitation? How do you develop facilitation? What are some of the skills that enable facilitation to occur? Uh, I know that's a very important part of debriefing or the group processing part, but also throughout the whole uh, adventure-based learning experience, the experiential learning that students have. Yeah, that's a great question, Ben. Um, facilitation is definitely one of those um, soft skills. Um, and understanding how to do it well is is important. Um, we find the shift um, for students they're so when they shift from doing the activity to teaching the activity they they find it hard when they're teaching their peers and also when they're out in schools not to tell them how to do it like they want to we're so used to giving feedback on you know on skill development or on uh, tactical awareness and we give feedback here's what you're doing right here's how you can improve it in abl it's it's the work goes into choosing the sequence and the flow using a brief to or, or a hook if you like that you use at the beginning of the lesson to get the students to focus on uh, what's the important what's what are we going to focus on whether it's cooperation communication etc so it's choosing that it's setting up the activities in a way that you describe the activities you describe the boundaries of the activities and then you step back and you don't solve the problem or the activity for the student because then there's no i won't say there's no learning but 
the intrapersonal and interpersonal uh, development in that is minimized. It's like Jennifer was saying, I've done it in five minutes. Yeah, because I told you how to do it, which is completely the opposite of what we're trying to do. And so then as a facilitator, it's understanding that your role is to observe the group dynamics. What's happening in the group? Who are the leaders? How are they leading? Whose voice is heard? Whose voice is silenced? Um, are they getting to the point where frustration is, is causing detriment either emotionally, hopefully not physically, to other members of the group? And so how can I refocus? How can I shift them beyond that so that it doesn't completely deteriorate? Um, so it's those skills at the facilitation. And then the main part is coming in, in the debrief at the end, is leading the students through, not telling them, here's what I saw you do, this was good, this was bad, work on this next time, okay, off you go. It's helping them, it's questioning to get them to understand what they did, what they gave, how that influenced what happened in the group, what was important, what did they learn from the process and how that can help them in this case, in the next activity or the next class and even better how that can help them beyond. So the facilitation skills, it gets back to what I was talking about earlier in terms of as we're teaching this to our undergrads, we're constantly pointing out the pedagogies that we're using and the facilitation that we're using. And during an activity early on, I might stop them when things are, you know, things are starting to head south, as it were, in terms of frustration levels and some of that. And I will stop them and ask them what's going on. Why is this happening? And so start to point out, here's what I'm seeing. Are you seeing this too? So that I can point out to them, this is what you're looking at. It's not if you manage to hit a beach ball between 30 of you a hundred times in the air without dropping it. No, it's how you interacted. It's how, if I dropped the ball, what did the rest of the group do? Did they place blame? Did they roll eyes? Did they put me at the end of the line? It's those kind of things that all we can do is point out and start to make the link between the importance of it and then how we tie that back into the debrief so that the group makes meaning of what happened. Not that we could hit a beach ball a hundred times in the air, but how we got, what our group dynamics were, what the processes were, how people were involved or excluded, point that out. And then they start to understand that, okay, next time Jennifer had a great idea, but actually Judy took that and developed it more so it's good to listen to more voices and not go with the loudest person the rule of the loud in my classes early on that's what it is who can speak the loudest who's the biggest person who's the leader we're going to listen to them and so it's getting them to understand that that's actually that's not the important part and to develop a group we need to bring everyone in so it's it's an ongoing process it's getting back to that cyclical thing and I mean, you know, Ben, I've been doing this many, many years and yeah. I still learn. And it's getting our students to understand 
that it's okay to make mistakes because we actually learn from mistakes as long as we reflect on them and that you're not going to be perfect. The first time I grade them, I'm quite hard, but I give them, you know, feedback, but I tell, you know, I, I go through and I'm not soft on, um, here's what you're missing. So we'll talk through, I debrief the debrief with them and then they get another chance for the actual grade if that makes sense. So I, it's understand that it's okay to make the mistakes. It's not, you know, it's not going to have any impact, but here's my feedback and here's how you improve to get better. Um, and we only get two times where they teach, unfortunately, because in 14 weeks, when I've got a class of 30 plus, they can't teach any more than that. So, um, you know, and I have them teach a whole, they teach for an hour and 15 minutes and they've got to plan it. They teach the whole class and they lead the debrief and then we debrief that. Um, so it's just constant pointing out to them these facilitation or these soft skills. Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite a process though, isn't it? Uh, and thank you for uh, presenting that to us. I, I just, I'm sorry if I cut someone off before. Did someone else have a question? Um, I know we've had a lot of great questions and uh, we can, Hey, how about we go for another 10 minutes? Is that good? And then uh, we'll cut it off. Is that good for everybody? Is that good for you? So you're okay with that? Mm -hmm. It will cost yeah. you when I see you next, but yeah. I know. I, uh, <laughs> I you're more than a beer, probably lunch or breakfast or dinner or something. No worries. <laughs> you, you know I'm good for it. <laughs> I know. No worries. Um, I have a question. Um, Sue, have you... Uh, publish any pieces where you are capturing student voice as a result of their experiences in uh, classes that are driven by ABL? Uh, yeah, we have both at the um, uh, pre-service level and stuff we've been working on in schools um, that we have, and I, I can certainly send those to you. Um, but yeah, it's been at the elementary school um, we've also done some work with um, in the outdoors, like Sequoia. Um, uh, what am I trying to think of it? Um, where we took a, or Paul took a group um, of uh, college age students. It was part of the uh, retention, not retention, you know, the, um, oh, I can't think, sorry. Um, beginning of the year, students on campus get to know you. They went on the, you know, they went to um, the outdoors. And so a lot of that was on student voice at the college level. We've done stuff with our undergrads, our pre-service teachers, um, both Paul, Jim and I, um, and we've done stuff uh, in the elementary school um, where it's student voice, um, student voice through words and pictures um on uh, their experience and what they've learned through an abl unit so i can certainly send those um to I ben actually i have those actually i can send them on there you go yeah that'd be great thank you have you read them, you know. huh? have you read them? no I, you did. Uh, I did yeah <laughs> i might not read them i might not read them right though <laughs> i've read them anyway no they're actually they're, those were uh, those ones that you were talking about um for thinking of the right ones, they were really good because uh, they actually um, 
they uh, they return really good evidence about uh, about ABL pr producing SEL outcomes and linking those as well too. Yes, they're um, the ones. Yeah. So uh, they were they're actually really good at like they were really good. Um, it's really good quality data that demonstrates how ABL does what it does in a school setting with t with yeah. the students from students. Thank you for sending those to everyone. Yeah, so I have a small question uh, oh. about the uh, student group size. So what numbers of, you know, how, what numbers do you think is appropriate for student group size in ABL? Huh. Uh, because I just think in some uh, other educational settings, we, they might be have large group size. So, because in China, and I know my daughter is elementary school in her class, and she has 80 students in one class. So, if teachers in such education settings, they want to employ ABL in their PE class. So, what are your suggestions or for in terms of the group size or strategies? Yeah, yeah I mean, you can do ABL with... Um, with any number of, well, I won't say any number. You can certainly do them. I've seen folks teach uh, groups of 80 to 100. We've done it at national conferences. Um, the management part of it, if you are doing it in physical education, uh, there's strategies that you can use where you take your larger group and divide into smaller teams or groups, and they're working on, uh, they can be working on the same thing or different things, um, in the sequence and then it's about the teacher being able to manage those groups and keep them moving if that makes sense so mm. I, there's not really an ideal number because you can break it down to work I typically in the undergrad course will have anywhere from 27 to 35 um, which is you know your typical probably uh, elementary middle school class um, easy to teach you know we might divide into two groups for certain activities but then you've got extensions in the activity to keep one group working while the other one is um, you know finished uh, in larger groups you can do that too um, it's just a case of then making sure that you've got good management and organizational skills uh, the debrief would be more challenging, but you could have groups. If we've got a team of four teams of 15, we've got a class of 60, if my math is right, four, four teams of 15, they can debrief in the group. As a facilitator, you can still pose questions to get them to debrief, but it will be hard to debrief at 60 because what, what are kids going to say? Middle school kids, if you ask them in front of 60, are they going to talk to you? No but they might talk to the person next to them and in a small group of 15. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's just finding ways to organize and manage in that respect. I think that's what might be one advantage of ABL. There's no very strict limitation on group numbers. It's yeah. a good point, Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we've got time for one more question. If anyone's go on. How are we doing? I mean, it's, uh, it's been a great session and, uh, you know, uh, um, it's getting late in the day. Does anyone have a burning question uh, they want to ask? Or uh, I might just uh, say we've done a great job and uh, we want to 
Go and have some dinner. <laughs> walk the dog. I always, yeah, no, I walked the dog before. Now I'm glad I did because it's raining now. <laughs> yeah, it looks like the storm is coming. Yeah, it looks like storm's here. Our yeah. weather's changing. <laughs> we were 82 and sunny and now we're raining and cooler. Yeah. We're um, still blue skies, so I might get that walk in yet. Right, okay. Well, we'll, we'll uh, let you do that. Uh, Sue, uh, thank you so much uh, for sharing your knowledge and understanding of ABL. Uh, your insights and your way of explaining and understanding it is uh, really special. And uh, we really appreciate the time that you've taken to share uh, all this with us. And um, what I normally say now is kia ora, which is our Māori word for thank you. And uh, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. And I'm sure the students want to thank you and say bye-bye. But... Uh, of course, we've got some papers coming to us. So uh, if, uh, if you send me some, that will be great. I know Dernal is going to send some around. Uh, and, uh, and then I, I hope you don't mind if some of the students email you if they have questions. Oh, no, absolutely. Please, please feel free. Um, make sure you know, available. If we ever get back to being able to go to conferences, please come off and have a chat. <laughs> For sure. Thank you so much, Sue, again. Kia ora. Thank you very much. Thank you. See you soon. Take care, everybody. See you soon. Good night. Take care. Good, night. Good walk. Yeah. Get out there. I will. I will. Get on you, mate. And All we'll right. be in touch. Thanks, Sue. Thank Bye. you so much. I'll see you in the recording. Cheers.